Welcome to ED ECMO. Welcome, welcome to ED ECMO. Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is ED ECMO. ED ECMO, Zach Shiner. It is March 2018, and we just finished the best reanimate that we've had so far. Definitely the smoothest we had. Demetrius Yiannopoulos out of Minnesota totally brought the house down. We had Lionel and Alice from Paris. We had Chris Nixon and Bevan Rudenberg and David Anderson from the Melbourne and Australia. We had Zaf Kossum and Jim Manning and Amy Hackman and, and just so many amazing people. The conference was off the hook. So we are planning our next one for March 2019, maybe February. We're still working on those dates. It'll be coming out soon, so you'll want to sign up for that. And a lot of conferences coming up in the future that I'll let you know about as we get closer, but we are on the road as usual. So today, I wanted to take a step back, and I want us to look back at the origins of ECMO. If you have any familiarity with ECMO, you know the name Bob Bartlett. He is the godfather of ECMO. He has done so much for the field. He has been so instrumental for our success in San Diego as well. And I got to interview him and ask him about not only the past, really about how this all started, but also about just his thoughts on the future. And he comes up with some really interesting things, some things that I, I guess I wasn't really expecting him to say about where we need to take ECMO and where we need to go with this. So let's start it off, the history of ECMO with Bob Bartlett. So the beginnings of what we now call ECMO date back to the invention of the heart-lung machine by a Philadelphia surgeon named John Gibbon, who worked on this for about 20 years in the laboratory and did the first clinical case in 1954. He perfused a patient with atrial septal defect successfully, and that led to the entire field of cardiac surgery. Uh, By the 60s, there were several centers that were using the heart-lung machine to operate on children with congenital heart disease, mostly atrial septal defects and later on tetralogies and other abnormalities. But the mortality for those operations was very high, as high as 50%. It was clear that the cause of the mortality was the heart and lung machine itself. So several people set out to determine why why that was. Uh, Many laboratories worked in this area but the three that really developed the concept of prolonged extracorporeal circulation were a group led by Don Hill in San Francisco, a group led by Ted Colabo at NIH, and our group, which started at the Brigham and Children's Hospital in Boston. The, uh, it became apparent early on that the cause of the complications of the heart-lung machine was the artificial lung. What was used at the time was simply exposing blood to oxygen and uh, removing CO2 in the process, but the direct exposure between blood and gas uh, was very damaging to the formed elements and also to the (coughs) proteins in the perfusate blood. So if the membrane was interposed between the blood and the oxygen, those problems were largely eliminated and it became possible to use cardiopulmonary bypass for hours and then even days or weeks of time. 
So that was the background leading up to the concept that a combination of a pump, a heat exchanger, and a membrane lung would allow extracorporeal circulation for days or weeks of time. So that, and that's what's called the bubble oxygenator, the one where you just expose it to air? There were many versions of the direct gas exposure oxygenator. Uh, the bubble was one. Running blood over a screen in an oxygen environment was one. Putting blood on rotating discs that created a thin film of blood was another one. But they all had the same effect of being very damaging to the blood in an hour or so. And so the advent of this membrane, and what is this membrane made of? I know it's gone through various iterations, but what made this membrane so beneficial? The original membranes were all uh, what's called silicone rubber or dimethyl polysiloxane. It's not rubber. It's a polymer of silicone-based chemicals, and it has the unique property of transferring respiratory gases, oxygen, CO2, water vapor, and nitrogen uh, through a very thin, very thin sheet of the membrane. So all of the membrane oxygenators up until about uh, eight years ago were all made of, uh, of silicone rubber sheets. Mm. But it would seem to me like the initiation of that, at least in the beginning, I don't know, uh, would have led to a lot of shear force on the on the cells. Did that occur, or was that not really a problem? The the flow of blood through ECMO type devices or heart lung machines is nowhere near the uh, amount of flow that would be necessary to generate uh, blood injury by shear. So there's a lot of talk about it in engineering, but the quick summary is shear is not a significant factor direct contact of blood with plastic surfaces, including silicone rubber, uh, causes a lot of abnormalities, particularly platelets tend to stick to the surface. That uh, causes platelet release reaction, which in turn causes clotting. So clotting is uh, the major problem of exposing blood to any foreign surface. Therefore, it's necessary to use systemic anticoagulation whenever uh, we're using ECMO-type devices. And so as we've moved into the now current membrane oxygenators, what, what are the advantages now? The uh, material that's used most commonly these days is called polydimethyl pentene, or PMP, and, uh, the, and it's made in the configuration of very small tubes commonly called hollow fibers. It just turns out that it's much easier to make membrane lungs by using a whole series of hollow fibers rather than flat sheets of the membrane. The hollow fibers are filled with oxygen and the blood is on the outside of the fibers, so gas exchange takes place. Uh, PMP material is, is not the important thing, but the Hollow fibers, which are microporous, are coated with a very thin film of PMP, which prevents a direct gas to blood interface, but still allows the transfer of oxygen and CO2. So uh, all the devices that are currently used in the United States and Europe are uh, made of 
hollow fiber materials coated with a thin film of polymethylpentene. So these are referred to as PMP membranes. Okay. I definitely want to get back into this technological aspect, but I want to take a little tangent for a second and talk to you about your initial phases here. Actually, we talked about the first one in the 50s. We talked about some places in San Francisco and, and beyond. How did you get involved in this process? I was a resident at the Boston Children's Hospital where the chief of surgery was Robert Gross, arguably the most important surgeon of the last century. And uh, we were doing, he was doing cardiac surgery on children. But if they were on the pump for more than an hour, uh, they uh, had a lot of damage and usually died. So it was because of that that I got involved. So with other residents and other uh, people who were at the Children's and the Brigham Hospital, we built membrane devices out of silicone rubber. And with that showed that we could maintain animals on extracorporeal circulation for uh, as long as four days of time, which was really uh, unprecedented in 1967, 68, when we did that. In 1970, uh, I and a resident buddy named Al Gazaniga moved to the University of California, Irvine, which was a brand new medical school. And uh, we were the surgeons for the entire <laughs> department in a county hospital. The importance was that uh, there's no one around to say you can't do that. <laughs> so uh, we, did, uh, we did a lot of great surgical techniques and we did uh, a lot of resident teaching and we carved out a laboratory and made a laboratory to continue our study of prolonged extracorporeal circulation using a membrane oxygenator. Uh, in that lab, we demonstrated that you could do this for days at a time without any deleterious effects in animals. So we were actively studying this and running the clinical services in the hospital. Uh, in 1971, uh, we were asked to see a patient in Santa Barbara, California, who was a post-trauma patient. Uh, we were not ready to try it, but we called Donald Hill, who was a thoracic surgeon in San Francisco, who had already done six tries of prolonged support using a different type of membrane oxygenator. So he came to Santa Barbara and treated that patient, and that became the first survivor of what we call, what we now call ECMO, quite a famous case reported in 1972. In that year, we uh, had a patient of our own who was failing following an operation for transposition of the great vessels uh, with cardiac failure, and we put that baby on our own uh, version of the machine, and he recovered being the first cardiac recovery patient and also the first child. And then in 1975, we treated a little girl who had uh, what turned out to be persistent fetal circulation syndrome, but uh, profoundly hypoxemic. And we put her on our laboratory version of the machine and she recovered. She became the first newborn patient who recovered. And that turned out to be important because uh, the early use of ECMO was very successful in that particular group of patients. 
And this was the, the young girl whose name became important? Her name is important because the, the nurses named her Esperanza, which mm-hmm. means hope in Spanish. And uh, uh, years later, we stayed in touch with her, uh, and her name appears in some of the publications about early ECMO. And she, in fact, is a good friend of the ECMO community and often comes to the ELSO meetings to meet uh, everyone else who's involved with this technology. Yeah, such a great story. Okay, so so you're working in the lab, doing clinical services, and this oxygenator that you're using at the time, I mean, how are you developing this? What are you using as resources? This is sort of a question more of technology and how how we as clinicians can push the needle even further. So as I said, there are several laboratories and eventually companies working on membrane oxygenators and uh, there were three or four available. We initially used the Landay Edwards sheet type oxygenator that was made in uh, California. We were close to the company, so we could use that device. Eventually, everyone used the device invented by Ted Colabo, which is a f- flat sheet of membrane wrapped into a spiral configuration. And that device was the only membrane oxygenator used for ECMO up until uh, about 2008. And so, and at this time, what kind of pumps are you using? We used a roller pump uh, as we were using for cardiac surgery, uh, the, but the, the roller pump uh, can suck too hard if it's attached directly to uh, a drainage catheter in the right atrium. So we modified that with a pressure sensing apparatus that that simply turned the pump off whenever the suction pressure was too high, which was to say over about 100 centimeters of water suction. Uh, so that we used that, and everyone in the world used that for many years until uh, uh, more recently a switch to the centrifugal pump. Uh, centrifugal pumps had been used in the early days, but they were very damaging. The blood caused too much hemolysis over a few hours so we're never uh, suitable for long-term support until a German engineer named Mendler pointed out that if you put a hole in the middle of the rotor of a centrifugal pump, uh, that prevented a lot of the complications and so it could be used for a long time. Uh, most centers switched to using centrifugal pumps with the Mendler modification uh, as of about uh, 2010 or so, only because the centrifugal pump is pressure limited, so it cannot blow out on the high pressure side. Roller pumps, if you clamp the outlet side, will blow up, and many of us had the entire circuit blow up, not often, but once or twice a year, enough to make us think that that potential complication was not worth it. So uh, basically, almost all the world has now switched to using centrifugal pumps. The problem with that is they do suck too hard. They cause a lot of hemolysis. So hemolysis is now uh, more common than it used to be with ECMO support. Uh, There are pumps that eliminate all of those problems. Uh, They're so-called peristaltic passively filling pumps, uh, but there's none available in the United States right now. We're all waiting for that development. 
I'm I'm trying to wrap my mind a little bit around what the roller pump and these like feedback loops for pressure gauges were at that time. What was the technology for even measuring pressures? Well, you, could, you had all kinds of pressure transducers, so it was easy to measure the pressure. Um, we what we did on the negative pressure side was to put a very small compliant reservoir. Uh, between the pump and the patient, uh, which was attached to an electric switch. So if the reservoir started to collapse, the pump would turn off or slow down. So that controlled the uh, inlet pressure. On the outlet pressure, we had high-pressure sensors, but the problem is that if an arterial line gets occluded for some reason, someone steps on it or the patient turns to the side or something, the pressure goes up so fast that at the time we did not have servo regulation systems that would turn off the pump uh, in a second, which would avoid blowout. Uh, we should return to that because now that would be quite easy to do, and we could go back to using roller pumps, which uh, uh, which I would much prefer. Yeah, that's that's actually kind of where I want to go next. Is I want to pick your brain as far as where you think the next changes for ECMO should go. Well, the next uh, important changes is going to be total automation and servo regulation. So the system will adjust the flow and the sweep gas flow uh, automatically to maintain a desired set of physiologic parameters uh, and do that safely. Uh, the uh, there There are pumps that will do that, and you could do it with roller or centrifugal pumps with appropriate electronic feedback systems. The problem is if it fails only once, the patient can die, so that uh, a mechanical system which prevents excess suction and also prevents excess outlet pressure is what's needed, so, so it doesn't have to rely on an electronic system. That's the design of the uh, peristaltic passively filling pump and uh, the literature it's referred to as the M pump or the Rhone Poulenc pump. All right, I'm going to interject here. Peristaltic pumps, this is cool stuff. It's in the show notes. Check it out. The idea is that you have a collapsible tubing. The tubing will fill with blood if the pressure is positive in the inlet. So it will prime as a result of having positive pressure. However, when negative pressure occurs, the tubing collapses and therefore no blood will go into the chamber. The roller pumps will not be pushing anything forward. You will not get the generation of these large negative pressures that we have concerns about with traditional roller pumps. Uh, made in France and uh, th that's where we're going next with that type of pump. That will make it possible to dial in the parameters that we want, a certain amount of flow, a certain amount of arterial oxygenation and CO2, and then uh, the pump can do all that uh, automatically by adjusting the uh, pump flow and the sweep gas flow uh, without anyone having to think about it. Yeah, that just makes all the sense in the world. In a, in a day and age where perfusionists are a commodity that we don't all have a luxury of, and where we're trying to train more and more people to run these pumps, having more auto-regulation seems to me to be advantage, but clearly that would be a liability also for the, for the maker of the device. 
Well, yes and no. The, the liability is there for all the existing devices, and they fail regularly, as you know. So a uh, safe, simple pump, which was uh, an order of magnitude better than what we have now, would, number one, take over all the market. Number two, uh, make this whole technology much simpler and safer for all of us. Yeah. I should say that the one company that has that pump uh, finished, actually, and, and under development is called MC3 Cardiopulmonary. That's a company that I started about 30 years ago and uh, actually started by designing and making this particular pump. It's called the M-Pump. So if anyone wants to research it farther, they can go to the MC3 website or go to PubMed and just look for uh, our publications on pump technology. Uh, I've I don't have any conflict of interest telling you that because for some reason the MC3 company has uh, has decided not to proceed with that development, at least at the present time. Uh, so uh, I'm unhappy with my own company <laughs> for proceeding in that direction. Oh, that's, that's great. So, I, Bob, I actually do want to kind of come back to the, the time when this all started because I think it's important for us to, to learn from you just as – you know, a pillar, the pillar in the field of, of ECMO about how how you went about change, how you went about speaking with the admin, how you went about speaking with your patients, how this new technology was able to be implemented in a way that was successful. Well, it's, it's pretty simple. It's just clinical medicine. Uh, my partner and I had sick patients and uh, who were dying, and we knew that we could develop an apparatus that would uh, prevent them from dying. ECMO, of course, doesn't treat anything. It just prolongs life while we figure out what the problem is and what we can do about it. Uh, so the, the basic concept is very simple. The basic apparatus is very simple. Thanks to John Gibbon, uh, we take blood out, we oxygenate it, we pump it back in again. And we've learned a lot over time about different ways to run that with venous access or other hybrid types of access. And we've had to develop access catheters and different types of oxygenators and different types of pumps, as we've been talking about. The basic physiology is, is the same for everybody. So oxygen delivery is dependent on blood flow and hemoglobin. A lot of our colleagues have forgotten the hemoglobin part of it. <laughs> so trying to run, running ECMO on an anemic patient is like trying to... Uh, manage renal failure with uh, rectal enemas. It's, it's, uh, <laughs> you, you, just, you, you have to take advantage of the normal physiology to, to be able to use it properly. Um, but that's what we've done over time is just uh, incremental improvements. Uh, the people who hear this might be interested in a paper that was published uh, last month in the Journal of ASAIO. And it's a, it's a case report, but it happens to be the case report of Esperanza, that very first baby uh, that we did, because that case report was never published. And now, 40 years later, I thought it might be interesting to look at the actual case report that we wrote at the time. Uh, this was in 1975. Uh, so uh, ASO Journal agreed to publish that along with commentary. And it's quite interesting to see that not a lot has changed uh, in the intervening 40 years of time. Drain blood out, 
attach it to a pump, attach it to an oxygenator, and pump it back in again. Uh, and all of the uh, variables that have occurred since that time are just uh, variations on that fairly simple theme. It's interesting just to hear you tell the story about the preceding events that led up to that. Yeah, she's uh, Al Gazanig and I were the pediatric surgeons and the cardiac surgeons and the general surgeons and the vascular surgeons uh, to our hospital so that it was not unusual for the neonatologist to call us uh, for any neonatal complication that was a surgical problem, an anomaly of some type, but also for physiologic problems. And they knew that we were working on this apparatus and had used it successfully for uh, babies with cardiac failure. So that's, that's why we were bold enough to use this uh, laboratory apparatus on, on this particular baby. Bob, now moving more towards the eCPR community, are there things that you see happening right now that, that maybe give you pause? Or think, I, know, I know you're such a big advocate for us and you've been such a huge help for me even personally, but as far as things that you see that we could be improving upon. Well, it's very exciting to see the growth of what we call eCPR. And of course, that means it's the use of venoarterial bypass in cardiac arrest, but it has a huge spectrum ranging from someone who arrests in the operating room or the cath lab where we're all ready to do things to someone who simply collapses on the street. And uh, it's at that interface that the emergency room docs get involved, led by your group in San Diego, have great respect for all you've done. And as, as you know from our discussions years ago, uh, what's important about it is to prepare the entire hospital to do that. If you just set up to do that in the ER or as the ECMO team or as the cardiac surgery team, it won't work. You have to have the blood bank and the ER and the ICUs and everyone that you might imagine, hospital administrators, involved in planning that whole operation from the beginning uh, and then you have success with it, as you guys have shown nicely. Uh, but uh, we see a lot of reports of, you know, I just tried this or I tried this on 20 patients or I tried it on 50 patients and it worked or it didn't. But but uh, the, the reason that the, the system often fails is because uh, you can't do just part of it. If, if you have a patient in the ER who winds up on ECMO and now they're what do you know? They're recovering. Well, wait a minute. There's no ICU bed. No one told us about this space. So the practical issues are, are, are the issues today. That's great. That's so great. Okay, so as far as future technology, I hear a little bit of, hey, roller pumps are not completely out. Definitely membrane oxygenators are in. The idea of maybe a peristaltic pump would be a future consideration and a consideration for maybe a totally auto-regulated system. Anything else that we could be looking forward to? Well, the, other, the, the major complication is still clotting and bleeding and will always be. So nowadays it's a nuisance rather than a fatal complication, but it still is the big problem. So it, it will always be necessary to have some type of anticoagulation to prevent blood from clotting on the plastic surfaces of the devices. Uh, so there has been a lot of research which continues on developing 
plastic surfaces which will not clot, which means they will not activate platelets on the surface. And uh, that will come along one of these days. Sooner or later, we'll have non-thrombogenic materials that uh, allow us to do prolonged extracorporeal support without any anticoagulation. That'll have a much bigger impact on hemodialysis, for example, uh, or plasmapheresis or even cardiac surgery compared to the relatively small number of ECMO patients, but, but it will be important. In the meantime, uh, the, the anticoagulant that we use has always been heparin, but there are lots of problems with heparin itself, measuring it, the dosage, the preparation. And so many centers have now learned that using a direct thrombin inhibitor, uh, either bivalirudin or argatroban, uh, is a much simpler, safer, and easier to control method of systemic anticoagulation. So I'm urging everyone to use the direct thrombin inhibitors rather than heparin. And uh, in the centers that do that, there are less bleeding complications, less clotting complications. It's much less expensive, believe it or not. Even though the drugs are expensive, the monitoring techniques that are necessary to use heparin are not necessary for those drugs. Uh, so uh, I'm urging everyone to go to direct thrombin inhibitors as the anticoagulant of choice. Yeah, what comes to my mind with this topic is just the whole idea of ECMO for trauma. We've we visited this a couple different times on ED ECMO and how <clears throat> maybe this is all the full circle, going back to not even using heparin in the circuit at all, just the heparin-binded tubing. I haven't seen any literature in the trauma world about using bivalirudin or agatroban. That'd be an interesting... Uh, it's 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 coming, and in fact, there's an excellent series from from uh, Portland, Oregon, from the Emanuel Hospital there of using only uh, direct thrombin inhibitors with very good results in trauma, specifically in trauma. Uh, the use of ECMO in trauma, what that really means is the use of ECMO in exsanguinating trauma. Mm -hmm. So someone whose liver is totally blown out, or you know, we all have these patients who have vascular injuries that are so severe, cardiac injuries, for example, that that the patients can't survive and essentially bleed to death. But the idea of putting those patients on a VA ECMO system and inducing profound hypothermia, controlling the bleeding one way or another, then warming the patient up again, uh, that's coming. And so in a few years, that will be uh, reported in a lot of different centers where where you see a lot of injury. The problem is, suppose you have a gunshot wound of the heart, for example. Uh, how much time is there to get on VA bypass and perfuse the patient, cool him down, and warm him back up again? Uh, so uh, the, the, the problem is the initial meaning on the spot control of bleeding first, followed by ECMO support to get things under control, followed by warming up. But that's coming. Yeah, I was just with Sam Tisherman in in Switzerland, and uh, he—I mean—he's not giving out any of his data yet. But just the idea of completely cooling the patient with forty liters of saline down to you know ten degrees Celsius, uh, and then warming them back up with an ECMO machine. I mean, he's doing it. We'll we'll see if he can even save one patient. That would be uh, remarkable. Well, as you know, that's been done a lot, meaning hundreds of cases, for accidental hypothermia. Mm. Uh, the, the most recent 
<laughs> was in Seattle where they had quite a press release over using ECMO to warm up a patient who was in total arrest, but but profoundly cold. So that works. There's no question about it. One of the interesting things is that those patients get cold, their coagulation system doesn't work, and their platelets don't work. So they're sort of auto-anticoagulated, which is one reason that they can be that way for hours at a time and then uh, go on VA ECMO and get, get warmed up again. They haven't uh, intrinsically clotted everything off in the process. Yeah, this is, you know, Bob, this is a question I wasn't even planning on getting to here, but I, this, I really would be interested in it. You know, the whole idea of circ arrest in the OR. So, so for cardiac arrest or traumatic arrest, they die and then get cold versus when therapeutic hypothermia, they're cold and then die. Uh, and in the operating room, they're cold and then circ arrest. Do you have any right. experience as far as uh, moving the idea of circ arrest in the OR to maybe not only traumatic arrest, but also to medical arrest? Yes. Well, as you well know, the, the question of hypothermia during CPR uh, comes up all the time. There's, uh, uh, there's, it's reasonable to think that cooling the body down to some number will protect the brain and the heart while we're trying to get get circulation reestablished. And uh, I don't, I'd be interested to know what your protocol is. Most, most places the protocol is to cool the patient to about 34 degrees for 24 hours and then warm him back up again. Uh, but uh, that's as going to require a lot of clinical trials. But if we cool to 34 degrees, why don't we cool to 10 degrees and then take all the time we need to do whatever needs to be done next and so on. It's a it's a whole new area that no one's really explored yet. Yeah. The current thinking I think in that in that realm is that the mechanism when you're going to thirty three degrees, which thirty four degrees, which is what we actually do do at Sharp, is to inhibit the reperfusion injury so that those cytokines don't have as great of effect. With the whole true therapeutic hypothermia down to like ten degrees is when you're talking about hibernation of the brain and of the heart. And yeah, I agree with you. That I don't think anyone knows exactly. I know with Sam's dogs, when he's done it, the, the numbers look fantastic. Even post-arrest deep hypothermia, they, he showed that they could, they could bring him back. Whether that can happen in humans uh, will remain to be seen. Right. All right. Well, Bob, this is so fantastic, and I'm so appreciative of you, of you being able to come on the podcast. Glad to do it and fun to talk to you. Congratulations to you guys. You really established the first hospital-wide protocol for eCPR in the United States, and a lot of other people are following your lead, and it's just terrific. All right. So that's Bob Bartlett, amazing surgeon, amazing individual. He talked about the history of ECMO and how many individuals were involved with this, and that small changes led to big changes, led to huge things like putting the first pediatric patient on bypass. Just imagine taking someone into the operating room and doing that for the very first time. Bob went into a lot of different things. He talked about roller pumps versus peristaltic pumps versus centrifugal pumps. And clearly each have their advantages, disadvantages. Roller pumps will blow out whatever volume is in them through the circuit. And so if you have a clamp on the end of it, you're going to have blood all over the walls and has 
Bob said he did that a couple of times every year, so that's that's pretty impressive. Uh, we also talked about the advantages of centrifugal pumps, which is that they are pressure limited. However, they can cause hemolysis and no flow if you have kinks or clamps on the on the circuit. Peristaltic pumps may offer some advantages. We'll have to look forward to the future for that. We talked about oxygenators and how we used to use direct exposure of oxygen to the blood, and this was problematic. So we now have these hollow fiber tubes, PMP coated, and that this has definitely been an upgrade. The next upgrade we will just have to wait and see. Finally, we talked about direct thrombin inhibitors. We talked about how anticoagulation continues to be a big deal for these circuits and that advantages to bivalerin neurogatraban may be there. All right. From ED ECMO, from Scott Weingart, Joe Belezzo, Chris Ho, and myself, Zach Shiner, signing off.